Father, we thank you for, again, the opportunity to give. And God, we pray that you would richly bless uh, our offering uh, and that you would use it uh, here for your glory and for your purposes. I pray that you be with me now as I share and uh, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mary pondered these things in her heart. That's where I thought I would go uh, when Garrett asked me to preach. But being that it's Mother's Day, I thought, well, that's the first thing that came to mind. But I do hope I'll help us to ponder some things, but it won't be uh, with that passage. Uh, rather, I want us to go to the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible, which means the most quoted verses of the writers of the Bible, and that would be Exodus 34, 5 through 7. So if you turn to Exodus 34, 5 through 7, that will be our passage today. And now is when I plan to tell you about I might get emotional, but you've already seen that. Uh, so the kids know that in the youth group. Uh, I feel it coming on right now. Uh, so it's not an apology. It's just a courteous warning. It's coming. It's already here. <laughs> uh, so I apologize, though, for real. I guess I just said I'm not apologizing, but I do feel like, you know, this is part of me, right? And so I shouldn't apologize, but we're going to get through it. We'll get through it. Um, so uh, I'm not meaning that to, to manipulate you in any way, um, and I hope God would use it. So, um, but before I do that, uh, before we read, um, you know, through some devotional reading I was doing in the month of April, uh, and then through this book, um, Bearing the Name of God, um, that's kind of where this sermon will, or I'm struggling to call it a sermon just because I don't preach. I teach, but uh, we'll do what we do today together. Uh, but this is a, a book that I really have enjoyed. Um, this is by uh, a lady named... Uh, Carmen Joy Imes. Uh, she's a former missionary to the Philippines, uh, Old Testament professor, and a mom, uh, being that it's Mother's Day. Uh, I'll have the book with me afterwards. You're, you're welcome to look at it. Um, but it's really been a very interesting book uh, to read. Well, a few years back, um, Andy Stanley, uh, who's the son of a famous pastor, Charles Stanley, who recently just passed, Andy Stanley made a bit of a stir by saying that we should unhitch from the Old Testament. Um, I don't agree. There's some deep linkages. And this passage we're about to read is one of the biggest. I don't think we should unhitch. Our understanding of the New Testament really is rooted here in the Old Testament. But Imes, in, his, in this book that she wrote, takes us back to Mount Sinai where Jesus, or I'm sorry, where Israel meets God. Uh, she explains the meaning of the events on the mountain. And she makes the case that we've misunderstood the issue of taking God's name in vain. It's quite interesting, and I hope we'll see that together today. She argues that the commandment is not so much about misspeaking, but about bearing or carrying the name of God. Big issue. So let's start with how God revealed his character and proper name to Moses in Exodus 34. Being that I'm getting old, I have to wear glasses now. 
Um, so if you're able, please stand with me as we read this passage aloud. Uh, this is a visible sign that we do as just a sign that we see this as God's authoritative word and its importance in our life. So I'll be reading from Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You can be seated. Man, I gotta get my act together. Uh, I knew it would come. I, you know, you plan for this and you think, okay, this is where I gotta really be careful because I can cry there. Man, I couldn't even get through the announcements. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's focus here. Um, now remember, uh, as we get started here, this is the second time Moses has gone up on the mountain. Um, he got the Ten Commandments before, and if you remember, he came down, and what did he find? Them worshiping a golden calf. I see some of you mouthing it. And so the first set of commandments got dashed on the ground and broken. So this is the second time Moses has gone up to the top of the mountain. And remember all this with a golden calf. Remember all the grumbling, even the balking at the Red Sea, all this stuff. And then we come to this passage. So this is really a passage that really shows us God's mercy and grace and patience uh, with us. And through this passage, we learn the proper name of God, the name Yahweh, which stands or, or is written really in your Bible. As we read that, you probably saw Lord in all capital letters. Uh, these are the events uh, that happen we're talking about here. There's lots more going on with the nation of Israel. But these are foundational verses, and particularly these verses help us to understand God and his character. So after this rescue from slavery, God establishes this covenant with Israel. And the covenant has two parts. God promises that he will be with the people and he will bless them. And then there's this other part for the people. There to be a priesthood who will represent him to the others that they will encounter and ultimately to the world. They were to be known as his people and to display his character, the character that gets revealed in those verses that we just read. So now again, the Ten Commandments came out of this covenant relationship. Uh, they were rules that guided uh, them and revealed more about God's character. And one of these commandments dealt specifically with God's proper name, and that's uh, commandment number three. And it deals with not using God's name, Yahweh, in vain. Uh, traditionally, we have understood this to mean that you should not blaspheme, meaning you should not slander or say wrong things about God. Or we've understood it to mean that you should not cuss by using God's name. Both of those I don't recommend. Uh, we're not supposed to do those things. But the book that I was reading really revealed to me that there's a much deeper thing going on there than just what we say. Bearing the name of God, as this book implies, 
considers the verb that's used in that third commandment. And translators have wrestled for this with this for hundreds of years. Because you see, in the Old Testament, this verb gets used in other places. But it's always used to carry or to bear. So when the lesson writers or when the uh, translators are writing this, they're kind of dealt with this situation. A name is not something you carry around, right? You don't bear up a name, you say a name. And so that's how the translation gets done. Well, unpacking this, we also have to realize that the Jews at the time went at great lengths not to say the name of God improperly. And so that's the reason you have LORD in all caps in your Bible whenever the Hebrew word is Yahweh. We translate it rather LORD in all caps in English. That's because they didn't want to even slightly misspeak the name of God. They were very careful about this. And I always think, you know, the Jews went really overboard with this, became very legalistic, lots of rules to prevent them from doing things wrong. So for sure they didn't want to say God's name wrongly, but was that the right focus? And that's what the book gets at. Were they missing the point by worrying about pronunciation when they really should have been worried about their covenantal representation? We'll jump in the back a few chapters in Exodus in chapter 19. We see that God's establishing a kingdom of priests, we see in chapter 19. And they'll represent his character to the nations. In that system, there was a high priest who had an active role. And reading in Exodus 28, we read that the high priest literally carries the names of the tribes of Israel. Further, the high priest is to bear the name of God on his forehead in a gold plate tied with a blue string. I don't remember any Sunday school crafts doing that, but it's in the text. Exodus 28. He was literally to bear the tribe's names and to bear the name of God on his head. It's the same word used here with the priestly garments as it is in the third commandment. So the major point of the book is how much do we, it's not so much about how we speak or say the name of God, but how we live out our lives as a representative of God. The commandment is much deeper than blasphemy and cursing, and it gets to the issue of hypocrisy. And the meaning of hypocrisy is claiming to have moral standards or beliefs, but not having the actions or behaviors that align with those standards or beliefs. We say one thing and we do another. In his book called The Scandal of Evangelical Conscience, Ronald Sider compiled data from many sources on moral habits of Americans. He compared how evangelical Christians compared to the wider population and found that there's no statistical difference between the moral behaviors of those of us identifying as evangelical Christians and those that do not. He concluded, and I quote, evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. Many of us know this already. It's hard for us to reconcile. How can a church not be markedly different? Well, Imes makes an insightful and helpful analysis. She says, 
to bear his name in vain would be to enter into this covenant relationship, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagans. And that's the damning reality of Sider's research. We must take the very heavy honor of bearing God's name not too lightly. We are owned by him, bought with a price. We are his property. And just like Garrett preached a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, when he was talking about husband and wives and marriage, we are not our own in Christian marriage. And we are not our own in a covenant relationship with the Lord. The priestly garments are described in Exodus 28. And I honestly, I don't remember studying this. I read it, I know. But looking back at it deeper was quite amazing. And there's a verse there, verse 2 in chapter 28, that says, These priestly garments of the high priest are there for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. There's a reason for the outward glory and the beauty of the priest. Just like the beauty of a brilliant sunset or a brilliant sunrise, that points to, to the Creator. And the priest is dressed outwardly in ways that we might find are weird, but they were there to make us realize that it's the same type of decoration as the tabernacle. And we know the purpose of the tabernacle was that it housed the presence of God. The priest is dressed to evoke the same idea of God's presence. The high priest has the name of the 12 tribes of Israel etched on onyx stones. Six on one shoulder, six on the other. The 12 tribes etched on his shoulder. And on his breastplate, there are 12 individual stones, different types of stones. And each one of them by jewelers, crafted by jewelers and gifted by God, it says in the passage. Each one of the tribes, all 12, written across his chest, inlaid in gold and set on his chest. So all of this is to communicate that he is there to bear up the nation of Israel to God. And I think a very much a foreshadowing of Jesus bearing us and our sin upon himself as he represents us to God. And then there's that, that golden plate that I mentioned, holy unto Yahweh, tied around his turban on his head. The clothing represents holiness, and he is there to bear the guilt of the people as the high priest. All of this is to communicate holiness and to take away sin, but the issue is Aaron is not holy. And Aaron can't do anything about sin. It is a shadow of what Jesus would do later, as we see in the New Testament. And as we read about 15, maybe more times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as the high priest. So if there ever was a book that linked old and new, the book of Hebrews does that, mentioning Jesus as high priest at least 15 times. So the clothing of the high priest mattered because it communicated something. Putting on these garments had significance. And that's the concept Paul even continues in his writings and says to the church at Colossae, to clothe yourselves with the very character of God we read about in Exodus 34. Compassion, kindness, patience, gentleness, and forgiveness. Similarly, we're told in Romans 13, 14, to put on the Lord Jesus himself. 
we are given specifics of what to put on. So we're also given specifics on what to take off and what to put on. And it's important what we're covered with. What we're putting on should communicate Christ. And just like we saw in Exodus 28, what we put on should be for glory and for beauty. Not these clothes, but the character of God that lives and resides in us. The high priest in the Old Testament was literally clothing himself. And according to Paul, we should do the same. Again, not so much with a robe and a turban, but with the attributes of God demonstrated to us through Christ. We are to bear his name in our lives. We are to represent God and his presence to the world by clothing ourselves, not with special clothes, but with his very character. Now, going back to the proper name of God, it seems like it vanishes in the New Testament. Um, this is his proper name that he reveals to Moses on Mount Sinai. How could it go away in the New Testament? Well, for one, Yahweh is hard to say in Greek. Uh, there's a couple of letters that are not allowing it to be said very easily. And then there's that idea of the Jews not wanting to even say the name out loud. So these are two very practical reasons, but I think there's an even more intriguing reason, and I think we'll see that together. Well, during the Exodus, Moses had a lieutenant from the tribe of Ephraim, and his name was Hosea, which means he saves. Now, Hosea was one of the 12 spies that went into the promised land sent by Moses. There's another guy you might remember. His name was Caleb. Hosea and Caleb said, Yahweh is big enough. The other ten said, ain't no way. Ain't no way. Well, Moses was so impressed with Hosea that he renamed Hosea. Hosea, remember, means he saves. So Moses said, you will now be known as Yahweh saves. Which is the name Yeshua. And in English, we say Joshua. So Joshua and Caleb. But there's meaning in Joshua's name. Now back to the New Testament. When Mary was pregnant, as you recall, Joseph was going to divorce her. And then an angel appeared to him and said, she will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Yeshua, because he will save And you might say, Chip, I don't remember it being Yeshua. That's because in English we say Jesus. Now let me do a little bit of linguistic gymnastics and get us here. The Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua, in Greek becomes Jesus. And Jesus is Jesus in English. Jesus' name is Joshua. But in Greek, we say Jesus because he lives out his name that Yahweh saves. The name was not uncommon, but the person that did it was very uncommon. Now listen to Matthew, and, or listen to Jesus rather in Matthew 18 or 15. As he quotes Isaiah 29, and he offers a warning about a life being lived in vain. He says, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For me, this is about worship. The Bible teaches that we should live a life that is an act of worship. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices as a proper act of worship, like we see in Romans 12. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it through the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So everything that we do should be an act of worship. I was just in Istanbul, Turkey, and Tashkent, Uzbekistan, both of these devout Muslim countries. And you see a lot of religious expression in Muslim contexts. And one of those is the call to prayer, uh, which happens five times a day. If you've ever been in the Middle East, you've heard it, you know about it. Five times a day, the call is made, and Muslims respond, a lot of them, by physically going to pray. And for a long time, I've, I've argued that this is really an act of worship, not really an act of prayer. Uh, we can talk about that later if you'd like. Um, and I'm not arguing we should do like this. Matthew 6, I think, is a very much a, a reason why we should not. But the fact remains that millions of Muslims every day take five, five times out of their day to do this act. And it takes maybe 20 to 30 minutes each time. So times five, that's two to two and a half hours a day Muslims are doing physical devotion and worship. Now, this should and, and more than likely will convict us, but I think as we consider the passages we read in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Colossians, we're being called to a much higher standard than that, more than just two to two and a half hours a day. Whatever we do is supposed to be an act of worship. How I eat, how I talk, how I play games, how I ride a bike, how I watch sports, how I love my family, how I entertain strangers, whatever I do should be an act of worship. We can't decide to lay down his name when we're at a ball game. Or we can't lay down his name if we want to in the classroom. We can't lay down the name when we're at work. We are always bearing his name. And how we live out our faith can, and I would argue should, be informed by these deep meanings and understandings we see in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye. Well, but Jesus challenged us to turn the other cheek. That's not opposite, by the way. That's deeper. Justice yields to mercy. Might get in trouble with this one. Tithing is an Old Testament practice. It's not in the New Testament. So what are we to do? Are we called to give more than 10%? I think so. Compulsion yields to generosity. This physical sign that we see the priest wearing, these physical things that describe certain things, these physical signs, these physical things give ways, gives way to matters of the heart. The placard on my turban that reads, Holy unto Yahweh, now is shown by the character of God and how I interact with my neighbors. You don't see it marked on my clothes, you see it in my life. An eye for an eye, tithing, physical signs of religious devotion. I'm not describing Christianity. This is the very way that Islam also functions. There's a lot taken from the Jews into Islam. 
And this is really the issue with all religious systems. There's two commonalities. One is they don't see Jesus correctly. And number two, they're at their core a system of works where we do something to earn salvation. Doing these outward things, I hope, will be enough. That's every religious system apart from Christianity. This is Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, secular humanism, and dare I say, even good old Christianity, Southern style, if we're not careful. We, as believers in the one true God, rightly see who Jesus is. Son of God, Son of Man, Savior, High Priest, Ultimate Sacrifice, King, Brother, Friend. And we base our salvation not on the good works that we do, but on what Jesus did to reconcile us with the Father. Now this act of strapping a gold plate on our head probably seems silly to us, and we're probably in no danger of doing that anytime soon. But our desire to have a physical mark was not left in the Old Testament. I told you Ronald Sider's research did not find an example of how Christians are different. Actually, he did find one area where Christians are statistically different from the world. Christians are far more likely to purchase, wear, and display Christian-branded merchandise. T-shirts, bracelets, bumper stickers, crosses, home decor, tattoos, you name it, we have lots of ways to demonstrate our Christianity in our culture. It's interesting that we still prefer the simplest way of bearing the name with something physical. It's far more difficult. To bear his name with your life. This indictment, I fear, is that while we're not cussing or we're not using God's name in vain, we may be living a life that's in vain. They will, they will know we are Christians by our love, do all things to the glory of God. This is how we are to be. This is how we are to be known. We are to provide an outward testimony of who God is for glory and for beauty. In Revelation 21, we read of John's vision of this big cube coming down in the sky. Made of gold with precious stones. And it's a linkage really back, I think, to the Holy of Holies. There's lots of similarities there. We talked about that in the youth group not long ago. And when we read about this, sometimes we focus on the mansions that we'll have. And by the way, spoiler alert, there is no mansion mentioned in the text. And the gold streets and the pearly gates, that is mentioned in the text. But the best reality of that passage is what we see in verse 3 of Revelation 21. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let me say that again. The dwelling place of God is with man. That is a massive, massive statement. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's the image, the picture of heaven, I hope that you can see. The burning bush, the smoke on the mountain, the powery wind of Elijah, 
the Holy of Holies. This is how God has visibly displayed himself to man. And we read there in Revelation 21 that, the, that in the center of that beauty, in that awe, in that majesty, there's a place for us. Folks, somehow we have got ourselves thinking about a mansion in the sky when we are going to be dwelling with the Lord himself. We are too quick to settle. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote. It would seem that our Lord finds us and our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when an infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. As believers, you are priests, based on 1 Peter 2, representatives of the Most High God. Beyond that, you're heirs with Christ and even called his friends in Scripture. Your dwelling place will be with God himself. Do we know who we are? Do we understand our spiritual occupation? That, my friends, should jolt us. Whose we are should cause us to glow and to shine, according to Philippians 2.15. May we stop clinging to the physical trappings of our cultural Christianity and embrace that we must be the very aroma of Christ. We are his workmanship. May our lives communicate the deepest realities of who God is to any and all who encounter us. Folks, the Bible is not just a collection of stories that we tell our kids in Sunday school. It is a divine tapestry woven together beautifully, and it gives life by pointing to the giver of life. We finish where we started in Ephesians 34. I want to read the passage again, but I want you to listen to a word that's going to be at the latter part of verse 7, and that's the word but. So at the first part, 5 through 7, the first part of 7, there's some beautiful language here of hope and restoration and gospel-soaked messaging, and then that word but comes. And then we read that God does not Look away. He must deal with sin. So listen for the word but in the latter part of verse 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I don't think verse 7 is talking specifically about sometimes what we call generational sin. 
I think the third and fourth generation is there to, one, demonstrate that God requires that sin be dealt with on an individual basis. It almost seems the opposite, but if you look at Ezekiel 18, verse 20, and also Exodus 20, verse 5, I think you'll see that more clearly. Further, I think third and fourth is there to contrast with the other number in the text, and that is thousands. The sin of alcoholism and abuse of my grandfather looms so heavy on my life that I never met the man. To combat his sin, my grandmother removed herself and my mom. But my grandmother spoke of it. in a gentle way. And by the glory of God, I've never been drunk. And a part of that, I think, comes from her speaking to that issue of my grandfather. My, sin, my kids know that drunkenness is sinful and cannot be tolerated. I'm the third generation. Maggie and Asher are the fourth generation when we consider my grandfather's sin. Sin can have grips through generations, but does not give excuse to preceding generations, nor do I see this as a text where God punishes the, us for sins of others. Each generation is to be faithful. We have no excuse for sin. No matter what our ill circumstances we find ourselves in, we need to all individually be reconciled to God. Now, don't miss what I believe we're to see here most deeply about God, and that is he is keeping his abounding steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands of generations. His love and faithfulness can be contrasted by the impact of my grandfather's sin. I know a few details, very few, about my grandfather. I would venture to guess Maggie and Asher don't know hardly anything about him. The details I know, I don't want them to know. His negative legacy will fade with the fourth generation. But guys, that's not my point. That's merely an illustration to get you to see God's abounding faithfulness in this text. And I think that's what we're being shown here. Third and fourth generation is contrasted with for a thousand generations. He is abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness. For millennia we have known about God and his steadfast love and faithfulness. And should he tarry for another millennia, we will know about his steadfast love and faithfulness and it will abound. May we be marked by the way as we believers demonstrate mercy and grace and slowness to anger, faithfulness, and forgiveness. This is our priestly duty. This is how we bear the name. May we not blaspheme, may we not cuss, but beyond that, may our lives also not be found to be in vain. May we be perceived as salt 
and light, gushing with a spring of living water, a beacon of hope, the very aroma of Christ. Believers, I challenge you to bear his name with honor, with grace, and love.